and welcome back to Beyond the Canvas by Muse Beauty. My name is Monse Hernandez. And I'm Francisco Rivera, and we'll be your co-hosts today. This week, we're looking at the Impressionists. Muse Beauty is currently in the midst of the Impressionism collection, and we thought this would be the perfect time to look into this incredibly famous style. Impressionism is known for its pastel colors, the treatment of light effects, and of course, for being the first modern art movement. But as we know, there's always more to the story, and Impressionism is a lot more than just the pretty art movement. So that being said, it's time to look beyond the canvas. So Francisco, in our last episode, we emphasized the importance of understanding a certain artist, movement, or work of art's context. So do you want to get into that for Impressionism a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So Impressionism came out of France in the 1870s. This was at the time of the French Third Republic. So the Franco-Prussian War had just finished and France had seen like a series of revolutions, political tensions going on in the previous, you know, century, you know, in the previous decades. And so at this point, after the Franco-Prussian War finished, France was relatively in a stable place, which allowed for the economy to improve and technological advancements were being made and stuff like that, which makes a lot of sense given how Impressionism started. Yeah, it was actually something as simple as the invention of the paint tube in 1841 that allowed for this world famous movement. It allowed for these artists to bring their canvases outdoors, painting all plan air and depicting the everyday scenes that we know and love that had never been portrayed in art before. Yeah, and so with this new invention of the paint tube, it made art and the materials that we use to do art so much more accessible and portable. And because they were able to store this paint in tubes as opposed to having to mix it in a studio or store it in a studio or whatever, they were able to take it outside and into nature. And there, that's when en plein air painting really started. And so they were able to take down and you know paint and capture these impressions, these moments of nature and the light effects and things like that. And so you can see those themes underlying Impressionist art all over. And artistically speaking, there were very strict artistic conventions that had been established by l'Académie des Beaux-Arts, the French Academy of the Fine Arts, that had a very strict Greco-Roman canon that was inspired by the ancient art of Rome. And the way that art would be produced and presented to the public was through this remnant of the patronage system that had been established for generations before. And these exhibitions were super picky as to what kind of art got exhibited, which artist. It was a very elite group of men that had been working within the canon established by the Academy. Looking at the timeline, we're just coming out of Romanticism, which was a very dramatic, very intense, high stakes style. Romanticism was what was happening during all these revolutions. So there was justice, there was lives on the line. It was super dramatic. Exactly. Life or death. Once you turn to look at Impressionism, it's a little more mundane, a little more quotidien, as the French say, daily life, genre scenes and things like that. But it also had a degree of abstraction. And so that had never been seen before. Exactly. Especially after Romanticism, which was dramatic lighting, intense lighting, the Impressionists took that lighting effect, the fascination with the lighting effect, and they completely almost turned it on its head to where when you're looking at an Impressionist artwork, you don't always know what you're looking at. And that rubbed the salon completely the wrong way. 
The Impressionist movement itself was actually very short in duration, and its innovativeness quickly branched out and developed into other styles, most notably Van Gogh as a post-Impressionist, Surat's pointillism, and even Cezanne, whose incorporation of geometric structures within his work later evolved into the Cubist movement that Picasso is famous for. Right. And when we look at Impressionism a lot of the time, I think for the sake of ease, we tend to lump a lot of these artists and their styles together, which makes sense. I think that's part of why we have movements to make it easier to talk about and discuss and categorize. And so, yeah, I think all of these artists that we just mentioned are definitely indebted to Impressionism, but would I necessarily call all of them card-carrying Impressionists? Not necessarily. Going back to the beginning of the Impressionist timeline, even though he wasn't technically considered an Impressionist, Edward Manet, famous for his controversial painting Olympia of a prostitute, was considered the father of Impressionism. With Manet, you really start to see the first works of art brought outside and depicting subject matter that at the time was very controversial. Right, but he actually himself was not an Impressionist and he didn't exhibit with them or anything like that. But I do want to say something about this Olympia painting though, because I think it's a point that gets lost a lot when you look at Impressionist art in general, and I think it illustrates that point really well, is that Olympia is really influenced by Japanese artwork. And this is a trend that we see in art all over, you know, modern art history, especially called Orientalism at least Japanism or Japanism falls under Orientalism. And you can see that in like the lines, looks like woodcuts of the Japanese Edo period. You also see it in Cassatt's work. You see it in Van Gogh's work. With yeah, the Van almond. Gogh wrote to his brother Theo a bunch about all of the Japanese woodprints that he had all over his walls that inspired him. Right. And that's because a lot of Japanese art and even just Japanese imports were coming into Europe at the time. So Europe was influenced a lot by Japanese traditions. And I think that's important to acknowledge when you're looking at the visual culture that it produces. The Impressionists partook in eight exhibitions between 1874 and 1886. For their first exhibition, however, they didn't go by the Impressionists yet. This group of rebellious artists were presenting themselves as the anonymous society of painters, sculptors, and engravers. It was actually during their first exhibition that a certain art critic, Louis Leroy, was inspired by Monet's Impression Soleil Levant, or Impression Sunrise, and he satirized the artists as Impressionists. Right. At first, when he said Impressionists, it wasn't how we know them now. He was saying, yeah, you know, this this is an impression of a painting. It's an impression in the sense that it's so hastily done, it's unfinished, and it doesn't give the full view of what this actually looked like. It's only an impression. You it's know only I mean? an impression of art. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And it's actually funny because a lot of art movements have gained their name through this sort of critique, if you will, of the art. The Baroque started like that, Fauvism started like that, and I'm sure there's a lot more examples. You know, it's one of my favorite, I guess, facts about Impressionism is that this art critic was just trying to invalidate their work and accidentally invented their identity. Right, which is uh, one of the most well-known, ubiquitous art movements of all time. If you ask anyone, an art movement that they know, Impressionism is going to be one, one of, of the them, first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as I mentioned earlier, up until this point, it was only the Academy that was organizing these art exhibitions. But what was different about what the Impressionists were doing is that they were independently organizing themselves. They were paying to have exhibitions out of pocket, which 
fun fact, happened at the studio of famous French photographer Nadar, but ultimately what they were doing is they were being subversive. They were challenging the hegemony that the salon had established, and so they were making space for a new artistic style to emerge, and that's something you hadn't seen a lot until that point. And that's something that really drew me to the Impressionists at first, too, is that these men literally got together and were just a group of starving artists that believed so much in their movement that they created this this community to support each other and to make Impressionism known. And to elevate their art. Over the course of these eight exhibitions, we see a lot of developments in Impressionism, as Monse talked about. You see Impressionism really branching out to even become in the eighth Impressionist exhibition, Pointillism by Sora. And each artist as well had their own involvement in each of the exhibitions. Not all of them did all eight. They all had their unique differences in their own art as well. So jumping into some of these artists that exhibited as Impressionists, there's Monet, that's arguably the most famous Impressionist. You know, his water lilies are loved around the globe. Also very important of his work were his series paintings in which he would sit and paint the same exact scene over and over again at different times of the day throughout different times of the year to capture the effects of light. And that's quintessential impressionism. I mean, being able to just sit somewhere, look at a scene from a certain vantage point and just paint it almost like an not an infinite amount of times, of course, but just so many times painting one scene, one perspective to death almost, and just capturing the way that light transforms that vantage point so impressionist do you know what i mean and then degas was super famous for his ballerina paintings which differ from the rest of the impressionists because he didn't necessarily paint all plan airs the rest of them did but he was inside painting these ballerinas in the studio and whatnot and then renoir was super famous for his quotidian scenes he depicted just the everyday life of middle-class parisians like nobody else did you have Cassatt, and she painted a lot of family scenes and with women and children. Then you also have Pissarro, who is probably one of the least known Impressionists, but he was so important in maintaining the group, keeping them t- together, and actually funding their endeavors. Right. He paid for a lot of the exhibitions to be produced. And then finally, which obviously there were a lot more Impressionists as well that exhibited with them. These are just some of the more famous ones or important ones, which we have abridged for clarity. But we wanted to talk about Gauguin for a moment. Yeah, we needed to have a short little rant about Gauguin. Yeah, So, so Gauguin is famous for his paintings in Tahiti. And the reason he actually went to Tahiti in the first place was because he had a huge fight with Van Gogh, in which Van Gogh really, really wanted him to come and paint with him and produce art with him. And Van Gogh wasn't exactly mentally stable and Gauguin had had enough of it. Van Gogh ended up pulling a knife on him and Gauguin was like, okay, no, and fled to Tahiti. So that's why he was there. That's how he got there. That's how he got there, but... (laughs) Then when he got to Tahiti, he would trigger warning for sexual assault, he would basically knowingly infect young Tahitian girls and islanders with syphilis. You know, he took a bunch of young girls, like as young as like 12 years old as wives, and infected the entire island with syphilis. It was so messed up. We do not stand Gauguin. Right. This is one of those classic, I think, examples of a lot of artists throughout art history, Gauguin, Dali, Picasso as well, right? We're not people that should be right. And I think especially today when we look at 
artists, we kind of treat it like the cult of the celebrity sort of thing. And especially with artists throughout art history, that cannot be done. It's- This is why context is so important because if you just look at Gauguin's paintings, like, yes, they're pretty, they catch the eye, they're unique, but then you learn about these atrocities he committed to these poor communities and it completely changes your perspective on this man and his art. And so looking, using Gauguin as an example, a terrible example, as an art historian or just an appreciator of art, you have to be able to recognize, sure, the contributions that this person made to artistic development, even, you know, impressionist, the impressionist movement, art history in general. But I would say arguably more important than that is you have to take into account the social context of what's going on at the time, what are the norms, the traditions, the mores, et cetera, et cetera. But you still have to hold this artist accountable for their atrocious behavior. So something that we think is really important when it comes to art and art history is actually formal analysis. You know, we talk a lot about the context, which is absolutely super important when you're looking at it through a historical lens. But sometimes when you're just in an art museum, you don't have much more context than just a little plaque maybe that says the artist's name, where they're from, and the year. And so you have to learn a lot about the art by looking at it visually and looking at the visual characteristics of what's going on or even what you can surmise from the story that's being told. That would be the content. And so we decided to pick out a few examples from the Impressionist era and just show what that would be like and how you can get beyond the canvas while only really looking at what's on the canvas. So the first piece that we really want to look into is by Claude Monet, and it's called The Gare Saint-Lazare, which in English is... The Arrival of the Train, painted in Paris in 1877. It was part of the Third Impressionist exhibition. And I think this piece is such a great example of both the importance of content and context. because Absolutely, and how sometimes you can just get that from looking at the picture on its own own if you just have a little bit of knowledge of what's going on. So before we get into real quick all of what's going on with this painting, what is visually going on? You know, what are the things that anyone that looks at this painting can tell about it? There's two trains, they're coming into, they're under like an awning sort of thing. There's a very triangular, strong triangular shape that this roof is making. And they're coming in from the open world, from a bustling city. There's buildings in the back, there's trees in the back, and they're bringing the smoke into the station with them. And as it approaches the angle of the viewer, it's spreading out over the ceiling. It's crowding the ceiling. There's people on the train tracks, people maybe working at the station, maybe people that are about to get on the trains. And it's a very busy and crowded composition. And I think it really ultimately entails well Parisian city life. While also at the same time with the choice of colors that Monet picked, you get the sense that it's not the summer, it's more of a winter season. You get the sense of chilling cold weather because of the cold lighter blue and gray tones. The the palette is a little bit more muted than the pastels that we maybe see with water lilies. I think this piece is such a great example of how content and context merge together to produce the significance of a certain piece. 
because content wise yes it's beautiful it has all of these famous impressionist qualities of the thick brush strokes when you look at it super close you can't exactly tell what it is because of all these impressionist techniques but when you look at it from afar the scene of this train station all makes sense right it comes together it's very visually cohesive while at the same time context wise you can see how France at this time, Paris was going through extreme industrialization and urbanization. And this piece specifically, I think, is so unique from Monet's other pieces, which are usually au plein air scenes of landscapes and whatnot. And yes, Monet has a few pieces of the Parisian scene, but... City life. But they're pretty rare. So this one specifically is pretty special and unique in itself. And then there's Cassatt, who similarly, she also painted daily life scenes. And actually the next artwork that we're going to dive a little more in depth on and visually analyze is by Cassatt. And that's Little Girl in a Blue Armchair. Cassatt, a lot of her work showed themes of woman and child, motherhood, family, bonding, especially femininity. And so I think I really personally like Cassatt for that because she was making space for women and feminine art in this impressionist male ruled scene in this male ruled industry. Looking back to this little girl in a blue armchair, you see something that in art hadn't been represented a lot until this point, which is almost boredom or ennui. This little girl is slumped in this armchair. She looks really bored. There's a little dog or a pet, which, you know, maybe we can add this one to the list of weird animals throughout art history because I do not know what it's supposed to look like. And then the thing that just completely draws the eye are these deep, a little bit green blues, honestly. They're really Those impressionist tones. Absolutely. It's the same, very similar to the almond blossom that we see in Van Gogh, very similar color there. And the rich, the, the different textures of whatever this couch is or this sofa on the textures of the girl's skin, on the textures of her dress, on the dress, on the texture of her socks, of her shoes, of the buckle of her hair. And she really paints just a complete picture, but it's a complete picture of boredom. Yes, exactly. For me, as a woman, this painting just gives off these vibes of this young girl coming into the realization of her status in life as a woman, regardless of her being upper class, which I think is very much exposed with these lavish sofas and couches and furniture, whatever. And you can really see it in her body language that she's sitting there like, really? Like, this, even if she is yeah, kind a of bourgeois- a limp like a rag doll mm-hmm, like a this, little bit oh, you know what I mean? even if I'm a bourgeoisie woman like this is it how boring right it's discontent almost and that's yes. something that you know it's it's almost like a different type of daily scene that the rest of the impressionists did like that was a daily reality that not a lot of other impressionists captured And that's what's so special about Marie Cassatt's paintings is she captures a woman's perspective of what's going on. So all that being said about Impressionism, so far we've mentioned a lot of artists, but we have left out one pretty famous one, and that would be Van Gogh. Now, Van Gogh himself was not technically an Impressionist, but I think now is the perfect time to bring him up and talk about him because he was a post-Impressionist and he was influenced a lot by the classical impressionist of the eight exhibitions. 
what he did, you could see that he took a lot of the impressionist techniques further, the brush strokes and the impasto, the thick layering of paint on the canvas. He absolutely punched that up more. And especially his use of color was what really makes him stand out. Yeah, Van Gogh used color to express emotions, which is something that the impressionists hadn't done. Artists like Monet just used color to capture light while Van Gogh used it to capture emotions. And we all know Van Gogh was pretty emotional. Right, he had a lot going on in that <laughs> For domain. sure. And a great example of how Van Gogh just took the impressionist techniques to a different level with him using color to express his emotions is with his painting, The Night Cafe from 1888. So when we're looking here at the Night Cafe by Van Gogh, what do we see? We see a bunch of tables, all with chairs at them. Some have people, some don't, but all of them have some sort of drink. And there's men slouched over. There's just a lot of sort of vague, not really detailed figures. They're kind of ambiguous, general, it could be anyone. Figures all throughout, slouched over at the table. There's a pool table in the middle, in the center space. There's a clock on the wall and through the back wall, you can see that there's another room behind the bar and you, you really just get a, a very atmospheric sense of what's going on. There's a skewed angular perspective. It, it Visually, it looks kind of like trapezoidal to me. It looks like the room is coming at you sideways while you're sort of looking at the corner. So it throws the viewer into this sort of like sideways perspective. And this painting the harsh uses of the colors red and green just give off this very tense and aggressive vibe because cafes at this time are not cafes as we think of them now as, oh, you go and you study while you're having a cup of coffee, whatever. No, they were a place where men would go to drink their sorrows away and find company and prostitutes. And you can really see these negative and corrupt emotions with these harsh colors he's created. Yeah, it's it's a den of despair. That's what it looks like to me. And perspective that it's looking through is like a guy that's really drunk or really hungover and the lights are just way too bright. And so it's like tension. Like that's what it seems like to me. And even yes, the colors express that, but then these hunched over men express this too. Like what, and they're completely in their misery. 100%. Yeah, like what? These men aren't just, they're not just taking a nap. Like they're hunched over in their personal despair and regret yeah. in their life. And within this trapezoidal scene, as you put it, the pool table has this extreme shadow that's almost ominous. The the door in the background that's leading into another room gives you this sense of like, what's behind there, which you could translate to what are these mysteries of life, whatever. This clock on the wall in the back scene kind of gives you a sense of ticking time and the lights in the same way that his painting, The Starry Night, is like accentuated against the stars. It's a very swirling, you know, brushstrokes around the light. In the same way, the clock, it's almost like reminding these people a little bit, you're wasting your life away. It's a little bit of an ominous Very, undertone. You took the word right out of my mouth, mouth, Francisco. Exactly. Right next to the door leading into the back of the room, there's this bar with just a stack of alcohol. 
And then not necessarily in the middle of the scene, but a little bit off middle to the right, there's this one man just standing there while the rest of the men are hunched over, slouched over in their own despair. There's one man standing fully frontal, just looking at you. That's, it gives off kind of the same effect as the clock. That's just honestly your reminder of our mortality. I don't know what it is about the guy that gives me this vibe, but he's creepy. It's like, why are you looking at me? What is, it's almost like a knowing look, even though you have no idea what his face looks like. So between these harsh red and green tones, these not detailed, intoxicated, somber men, the exaggerated shadow of the pool table, the ominous clock, and this creepily knowing man that's staring into your soul, you really get a sense of just the negativity that the cafe was, that Van Gogh was in. And it does create, it creates an impression of the cafe, but it also creates the level above that. You know what I mean? It shows you what's really going on, but then it puts the affectation of the person who perceived it, which was Van Gogh. And that is why this work is such a perfect example of how Van Gogh takes what the Impressionists did to another level by using all of these techniques to just take emotion and explode it. Speaking of Van Gogh's expressive colors, by the time this podcast will have been released, Musée Beauty will have released a eyeshadow palette inspired by Van Gogh. So shop the Van Gogh palette at museebeauty.com. Beyond the Canvas is brought to you by Musée Beauty, a brand made by creatives for creatives. Musée Beauty makes creative makeup easy so you can try something new with your everyday makeup. All Musée Beauty products are cruelty-free and have been formulated to seamlessly fit into your morning routine. Whether you're going for a bold editorial look or you're just getting comfortable with color, Musée Beauty allows you to be your own canvas. Vincent Van Gogh and the other Impressionist artists that we've talked about today blew the doors open for innovation and experimentation. Art was no longer bound to the Academy's perfectly realistic depictions of classical subject matter. These artists could now choose any subject matter they wanted and could portray it however they desired to. The Impressionists really introduced this idea that art could be and was a product of the artist and their feelings. It wasn't, it was no longer restricted to this outdated patronage system that was just so confining to the artist. And these artists, yeah, they took back a lot of power in artistic creation and production from the higher class. And even though Impressionism started in the discipline of painting, it absolutely diffused into other forms of art, including sculpture, music, and literature. It also wasn't confined to 19th century Europe either. Impressionism spread throughout the globe to create the global Impressionist movement. I think that's why today, when we think of art as being an expression of human creativity that's not confined to any rules of good art or bad art, this way of thinking and the overall freedom within art in general is indebted to Impressionism and the radical artists that partook in that movement. So to leave you guys with something to think about, we want to end our episodes with a quote relating to the art we've discussed. This episode's quote comes from the most famous Impressionist artist, Claude Monet, and he said, a good impression is lost so quickly. Now, when I picked this quote, I really liked it because I think it sort of points to two separate things. On one hand, the fact that Impressionism is about capturing just a moment so quickly. And so there he's talking literally about the impression, the impression of the moment of the vantage is lost so quickly. And Impressionists were trying to capture that down onto the canvas. 
on the other end, just the fleetingness of the Impressionist moment itself. There were these eight exhibitions. It sort of just blew the art world open and- It left as quickly as it came. Monse and I would like to thank you so much for tuning in and listening this week. If you enjoyed this episode or our last episode, please make sure to leave a rating or a review or subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. This episode of Beyond the Canvas has been brought to you by Muse Beauty.